Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay. And tonight I'm talking with a good friend of mine, a friend who I hope will be back for more podcast episodes because he is very well versed in a lot of different topics, especially those involving Mormon fundamentalism. Benjamin Schaefer, can you say hello? Hello, everybody. And today we're going to talk about Ben's background and his story, just so you know who this person is that's going to come on from time to time to tell stuff. But Ben, you're a lawyer, right? Yes, uh, I'm the managing partner at Schaefer and Briney Law in Spanish Fork. So Briney, is that with Drew Briney, the Mormon historian that documents Mormon fundamentalism? Yes, indeed. In fact, I was a history major in college, um, and I focused on the history of the West. Um, which, of course, meant that I focused a lot on Mormon history. I went to Southern Utah University, and uh, it was my connection to reading a couple of Drew Briney's books that uh, got me in contact with him when I was thinking about going to law school. Um, and so he was one of the first people I applied with uh, when I graduated from law school and thought, well, if I'm going to set up a private practice, I wonder who I should be practicing law with. And so I called up Drew and I said, so I'm your new partner. And he said, really? Who are you? So uh, anyways, we had a good, we had a few good conversations and then uh, we became law partners. That is so great. I didn't know that you knew him and he's come to Sunstone a few times and he's brilliant. He's a really good historian too. Yeah. And, and it's kind of interesting because I was of course interested in the law, but it was really um, history that uh, was how we connected in the first place. Yeah, that's interesting. We'll have to, we'll have to get him on this podcast at some point. I think that would be a great idea. I think you'd be willing. Awesome. Okay, so uh, you're a lawyer in Spanish Fork. You also have presented at Sunstone. You've come to Sunstone. Uh, let's start at the beginning, though. Let's tell people who you are and why you're on the podcast today. Um, you're not a polygamist. Correct. I, I am married, but just one wife. Just one wife. Okay, so let's back up. Uh, where were you born? Where were you raised? Let's start with the basics. Uh, uh, you know, that's the basic question, but for me, it's more complicated than usual. I usually just say I'm from America because that's where I've lived mostly. Um, but uh, I guess California, my, my family moved around a lot. So California, Utah, Florida, Ohio, Arizona, New Mexico. Uh, and then I spent a little time in Taiwan after I graduated from college. And Why did you move to- around a lot? For most people that, you know, have a dad in the military or whatever, but I, I think my dad was just born under a wandering star and poverty. So um, <laughs> our family was actually homeless a couple of times throughout. So it wasn't always easy sailing. But uh, yeah, generally, if things weren't going too hot, which unfortunately they often weren't, the grass was greener on the other side. So we'd go look for a job in some new city. And so we'd move on. Did you enjoy that as a child or was it difficult? You know, I think it's interesting. There's, there's there's really a difference between poverty and grinding poverty. My family always had that really bedrock Mormon values to fall back on. We were a strong, stalwart family. We cared for one another. We were close. So poverty never seemed terrible. There were times when we lived off food storage, and so we primarily ate homemade bread, you know. How, how many day. siblings and are we talking like how many kids did your parents have to oh, support? Yeah, there's six kids in my family. I'm the second oldest and only one sister. So that's uh, five boys, one girl. But yeah, it was it was it wasn't a bad life because 
it never seemed all that desperate. And the other thing too is, is no matter where you go in the world, you can always fall on the help of other LDS people and they're always welcoming. So, so it never seemed all that bad. So you um, were, we as, <laughs> as Ackerman goes, BIC, you were born in the covenant, which means your parents were temple married and. Correct. Um, they're both converts. Oh, interesting. so I have no, no pioneer ancestry or, or any of that. Of course, we've done a bunch of genealogy now, so we've found you know distant relations who were earlier members of the church than us. But um, but yeah, my parents were both converts, and and yet the, the gospel is a big part of our life. My my parents joined the church. Well, my mom my mom was second, and I want to say that was five or six years before I was born. So by the time I came around, of course, yeah, we were we were definitely deep in the church and doing the whole program. I suppose the one thing that was a little bit different is that my parents, maybe it partly was because they were converts, they didn't have the the reticence about the taboo subjects that a lot of other people did. I remember discussing things like seer stones and miracles and visitations and polygamy and consecration, all that sort of thing in our regular family home evening discussions on regular Monday nights in the 80s and 90s when I was a little kid. Did they convert from a different religious tradition? I know a lot of converts around that time would have been presented with anti-Mormon doctrine, which at the time was sort of, from what I understand, an evangelical take on some early Mormon historical exposés that had some truth and some crazy stuff, too. Yeah, I guess the funny thing is, is um, the stuff that seems crazy in church history, that's what I was raised with. Um and it never seemed strange to me that uh, this uh, this magical worldview and all of that was kind of just the Mormonism I grew up with, which does seem a little bit strange because my parents being converts, how did they learn all that stuff? I guess I'm not exactly sure, except that maybe in the 70s when they joined the uh, when they joined the church, maybe there was uh, still more talk about that more openly than there is now. But um but yes, actually, they did come from different traditions. Well, my dad, I suppose, didn't. My dad was uh, raised pretty much agnostic. Um, his family had very little interest in religious things. I thought it was interesting. They did take the missionary discussions when my dad joined the church. But their take was, well, it's probably true, but I would hate to give up smoking and drinking and coffee. Because I kind of need those things. So if there is a true church, it's probably them Mormons, but I'm not that interested. And then... My mother was kind of the opposite. They were super Catholic family. I mean, the whole nine yards. My mother never attended a school that wasn't a Catholic school until she met my dad. And uh, as a 18-year-old, you know, blushing uh, young thing, she decided that, well, actually, I really kind of like this guy. So I guess I'm not going to become a nun like I'd always thought I would. Um, but when she was younger, she was definitely thinking about taking orders and becoming a nun. And I, and that was actually a source of tension to some degree in my life. I was raised by these parents who were very stalwart Mormons. We had family scripture reading and all of that. But I knew whenever we visited my mom's side of the family that they were very uncomfortable with us being Mormons. And they were all very, very Catholic. Uh, I was a deacon and things like that. So Interesting. So what would you? how would you describe your relationship with the church, the LDS church at the time? Was it a positive experience? Did you enjoy being a youth in the church? It was very positive. I mean, I guess I should say, of course, there's always a little bit of darkness mixed with the light. There were some things that um, really were really were spiritually abusive, but it takes some 
maturity, I think, and reflection to be able to look back and say, oh, that's why that seemed so crazy. That's why that was so hard for me. Because, uh, But when you're in the mix, when you're in the mix, you don't see it quite as much. Um, Do you have anything specific to point to? Well, I think there's a certain amount of kind of extremist legalism that's very prevalent in the LDS church. And so I was raised almost taking it for granted that if somebody smoked or drank coffee, that they were morally inferior to me, um, that I was special because I didn't do those awful evil things, you know? Um, and of course that means in a lot of cases, I just grew up very sheltered from a lot of that. I was probably 16 or something like that before I found out that the reason why we don't drink coffee isn't because of the high alcohol content of coffee. turns out there's no alcohol content in coffee, but I didn't even know that because you know, it just wasn't part of my world. I'm sure a lot of people wish there was <laughs> some alcohol content. Yeah. In fact, I, I remember, uh, it was probably on my mission before I, I came across this, this Mormon joke, but they were saying, uh, you know, if I ever have a cup of coffee, I'll break in the word of wisdom already. So you better put a shot of whiskey in. There, there you go. Get it, <laughs> get it all out of the way. That's right. I like um, that. Um, so where'd you serve your mission? Um, I served my mission in Kirtland, Ohio. It's the Ohio Cleveland mission. Okay. And um, and yeah, I was I was really privileged. I think I served in Painesville, which is Fairport Harbor was part of my uh, my area that we were often in. Fairport Harbor is um, the port on Lake Erie where a lot of the Mormons on their way to Kirtland would would land essentially um, and make their way to Kirtland from there. And then Kirtland was also all those church history sites were part of my area and uh, my district. And so, so that was really neat. I also served for a little while in Toledo. Okay. So talk to me about uh, the mission. Was it a positive experience? Did it help your testimony? Well, I guess it's always mixed a little bit. I remember there were certainly feelings of inadequacy. Uh, You know, if I was going to talk about um, kind of the extreme legalism that I felt in the church, which I digress slightly, but this is one of the reasons why I actually like to tease that people call me a Mormon fundamentalist, but we're not the fundamentalist Mormons. The mainstream church, they're the fundamentalists. If you look at the definition of fundamentalism, it's usually people who take some kind of extreme literalist and legalistic view of their religion in an extreme way that usually um, has extreme focus on uh, exact obedience to certain cultural norms and uh, conformity to the expectations of the group and so forth. Well, shoot. Um, uh, I mean, I know it sounds funny, and so I do like to tease, but to some extent I feel such a relief that I left such a fundamentalist group to find such a broad, more open-minded, more liberal church, which is what's called Mormon fundamentalism. (laughs) Yeah, you know, and we're going to talk about that in just a minute because I think this is the first time listeners are hearing that you're an actual Mormon fundamentalist, but correct. That is, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm very active Mormon fundamentalist now. And I'm a, and so my, my calling is as a 70, which for us doesn't mean that I'm a general authority. What it means is, uh, I have a commitment to doing missionary work and traveling without personal script. If you got well, we're getting ahead of ourselves. We'll, we'll okay. get, we'll get there. I want to talk about that, but, um, yeah, I, I did want to agree with what you were saying, which is, that has been surprising for me as an LDS woman to experience that the LDS 
religion is fundamental in so many ways. Like you mentioned, the word of wisdom is one. Um, I don't know of any group that takes it and adheres to it as strictly and literally as the LDS. And that's saying a lot because I know a lot of different strange word of wisdom practices. Right. And, you know, there are various Mormon fundamentalist groups who are extremely serious about absolute obedience to a single leader and things like that. So, I mean, that's something that you'll see throughout various parts of Mormonism, not all of them, but um, it, de- there's definitely a theme there. And yet, um, I'd say the, the follow the prophet mantra of the mainstream church really is far more, I don't know, obsessive, far more important uh, in the church than it is in my church, for example. Um, and so, you originally had asked me about my mission, and yeah, in a lot of ways, it was a very positive experience, um, and I'm still proud that I went, and I'm still proud of what I did while I was there. Um, I helped bring the gospel to people. I helped bear my testimony of the Book of Mormon and so forth, um, but it was also really difficult, and it was usually difficult because of that kind of strict adherence, and it's more so on a mission than anywhere else, even in the LDS church, where it's the extremes of conforming to the expectations of the group are also those mission rules. And sometimes that's pretty hardcore. I mean, you go to these zone conferences and you hear the mission president talking about how if you got up at 631 instead of 629, it's sin on your soul. And the blood and sins of this generation will be on your garments of the last day because you did not get up two minutes earlier because we have to have Exact obedience. And that's actually a, a, a phrase they would use all the time is exact obedience to the rules because that's what will bring the blessings of heaven. And um, I'll, I'll admit there was definitely dark and difficult feelings that I had at times about whether or not I could really fulfill and live up to that perfect ideal. Now, the other thing that gets a little tricky is you have a companion on a mission and their attitude also greatly affects how well you can keep some of those rules. Like, have you gotten all your numbers up? Did you cross-light the number of hours expected on your weekly reports? That kind of thing. And I did have a couple of companions who got sent home early for struggling either with depression or uh, other social expectations. And so... Yeah, and and this is a perfect example. Uh, Another thing where the LDS seemed to be more fundamentalist, to use your definition of extreme would be the missions. I mean, and we'll talk about your missionaries in comparison with LDS missionaries in a minute, but this is a great example. Yeah, it is. And, and I can see now a little bit more, even though I, even though I made it through, I actually served a little bit of an extension on my mission. I was actually scheduled to fly home from my mission on September 12th, 2001. I think you can imagine considering the day before that was September 11th, 2001 that I didn't fly home on September 12th because nobody flew anywhere on September 12th, 2001. But uh, <laughs> that was that was after I'd been out for a little over two years. So I, th- I was like, wow, now I get to stay even extra longer. But but no, it was in general, it was a good mission. I, I remember my main feeling. One of the things that's a great privilege of having served where I did in uh, with all the church history sites was that on our first day and our last day on our mission there, we went to the where the School of the Prophets is in the Newell K. Whitney store and had time to have our own private reflections and prayers. And one of the impressions that I had at the on the last day of my mission was I thought about the words of Paul 
in Rome when he said, I've fought a good fight. I've finished my course. I've kept the faith. And I remember having the feeling like, did I actually follow every single mission rule every single day? My thought was no. But then I thought, well, isn't this to some extent what the grace of Christ is supposed to be about? Of course, I didn't fulfill the law in every letter, in every, you know, again, fundamentalist, exact obedience kind of way. But did I do what God sent me here to do? And is that good enough for him? Am I good enough? And I felt, well, yes, of course I am. Because through the power of Christ, my mission was perfect, even if I didn't have exact obedience. And maybe that was partly my feelings of rebellion against the exact obedience kind of mantra that we kept going through was, I remember thinking, no, that can't be what this is all about. It has to be about something greater. And I believe that if I'm out here um, seeking to serve, do what's right, help people, and yeah, proselyte, but if I'm doing it in a respectful, spiritual way, and that's part of me fulfilling my destiny as a man in the gospel, well, then I can't imagine that God's going to hold it against me if I got up at seven occasionally or you know, got home and reported to the district leader or the zone leader, if I was the district leader, um, you know, a few minutes late or didn't quite get my numbers up every week. That's That can't be what this is all about. So you found a way to, I guess, claim your faith without the need for institutional validation. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, But of course, at the same time, I suppose it does help that I, I wasn't in a situation where I was going home early or they talk about returning with honor. That's another mantra. Um, I can imagine it's got to have been a lot harder for some of my companions who are experiencing extreme depression and things like that, and then went home early. And so rather than being honored for the sacrifice they did give, they were probably shamed. For all I know, they're, in many cases, they may be shamed to this day by their um, wards for being one of those missionaries who went home early. Right? At least I wasn't facing that. And so I can understand why people might have a more bitter perspective than I do. But I feel like, no, it's all good. All of it. Even even my companion, uh, a companion of mine I remember uh, specifically who went home early because he was dealing with depression and stuff like that. He gave an offering. He gave a sacrifice. In fact, probably a bigger one than I did because he was really, really struggling through it. And, you know, courage is in the absence of fear. It's the, it's the certitude to go forward in the face of that fear. And he did. He did his best. Well, he didn't make it two years. So what? He gave his all. And I think that that's got to be really, honestly, that's very respectable. That's something that I, I can really honor his sacrifice for. And I just wish that people could see it that way. So let's talk about that flexibility that, that you sort of developed on your mission. How does this play into, I want to walk into your LDS experience after your mission and how you find yourself involved with Mormon fundamentalism, especially because you, I think you just admitted that you served a mission in 2001. That's correct. Okay. So I still think that there's a stigma about Mormon fundamentalists, like everyone joins in the seventies or something. And it's kind of dying out, but really uh, young people are joining fundamentalism all the time. I just met a couple that joined Centennial Park a couple weekends ago who are, they're like in their early 20s. Sure. In fact, it's kind of interesting. I think that um, each generation has their own ways of approaching the gospel or anything else, just like any generation gap would be. But I think that, and of course I'm speaking as more fundamentalists, but I think that Uh, Mormonism has 
truths that are going to speak to every generation in it, concepts that are going to draw people from any generation toward it. And so, yeah, if you think of Mormon fundamentalism and the only thing you can think about is really weird old-fashioned stuff, then, yeah, you're kind of that, – then that's obviously not the whole picture because, yeah, there's – there are definitely plenty of millennials who are finding this as a better expression of their faith. Um, now, as a Mormon fundamentalist, I'd say it's because they're recognizing those same eternal truths that Joseph Smith taught. So you were saying well, that know, some people are just – they're drawn to the fundamentals that Joseph Smith taught. Yeah, and, and I, I think that's, that's one of the things that's interesting, I believe, about any – really any spiritual tradition, if you want to get into it. Even if it's if it's Buddhism or if it's Catholicism or if it's Hindu or religion or Islam, each generation has to have their own reason. Each generation will have their own interpretation slightly. But those interpretations aren't necessarily completely new inventions of the religion. They're simply kind of new emphases they, as they look at, at these same basic truths in different ways. And I think that to me that shows one of the signs as to why Mormonism is such a – an interestingly resilient and dynamic faith because there's a lot of material there. Um, and so there's something organic, I think, about that faith process that we have in Mormonism. I mean, there's that radical notion uh, that Joseph Smith started even when he dis- uh, was describing the first vision, and regardless of which account you look at. We're talking about this revolutionary concept that God isn't just some feeling or thought or faraway concept or um, lives on top of Mount Olympus or something far away. You can literally go into a grove of trees, meet God for yourself, and get your own answers. And then what comes out of that? A huge body of additional scriptures. So uh, not only can we you know, resonate with, study, and enjoy all of this Jewish and Christian interpretations of all of these books in the Bible, but we also add our own books and our own interpretations of all of them. And so there's just a lot of material in there for people to find that meaning that helps them move forward. And so Joseph Smith, one generation, uh, say, for example, in the 1860s and 70s, we, were, we began to really struggle with our missionary work because outside of our small Mormon enclaves, everyone started viewing Mormonism as being about nothing more than polygamy. And yet, what about this whole idea of deification? That I mean, there's so much rich ascension theology going on. So all these, all this, all these Gnostic ideas are mixed up in it. Uh, so you know, and then what about what about this apostolic communism, which we call the United Order? What about these ideas of holding all things common? Well, that starts resonating with all people who maybe they're not even thinking about God per se. But how is it that religion brings us to create a better world, to create heaven on earth? Um, and so utilitarians might find great meaning in that. So there's, there's, there's just so much material in Mormonism that uh, I think it would be a little bit crazy to think that any one facet is actually going to die out. In fact, if, if Mormon history has taught us anything, no matter how many of di- divergent paths uh, it takes, no matter how many branches to the tree of the LDS movement we get, it's only likely to expand. It's not really going to contract. There's just too much material there um, to fire the spiritual imagination. I love that. Okay, so let's talk about how it happened for you then. Okay. So, um, as I mentioned before, um, my family was already really embracing, I think, a really broad kind of Mormonism. 
we were we were uncorrelated Mormons already in a lot of ways because the stuff that we weren't discussing at church because it wasn't coming up in the correlated manuals we were still discussing at home um so you know some people say mormonism the subculture it's about green jello and home teaching and follow the prophet and yeah those things were part of my upbringing but there was also this other idea that we should seek the face of god um I remember like having strong spiritual feelings when I was 14 and I thought this is how old Joseph Smith was when he got to see God face to face. I wonder if I could do that. I remember praying and no, I didn't have a first vision experience. The Lord didn't come down in a pillar of light in a grove of trees when I was 14, but I felt great spiritual confirmation. Um, Gee, even younger than that. I remember being maybe seven years old or something like that. And um, there were a couple of big rocks in our backyard that we were going to have to move. And I remember even just as a little kid saying, oh, I don't know if we should move the rock. What if there's a box inside? And then under, under the rock, there's a box. And in that could be in more gold plates. You know, do we have permission to move these rocks? Because there might be more gold plates. And it was like, don't worry. I'm sure these rocks are fine. <laughs> you know, we're just landscaping here. Um, and so there's, there's, that was definitely uh, so, so again i i didn't realize that this was outside the norm though to me like doctrine and covenants section 93 verse 1 uh is a fairly famous verse the one that says verily thus saith the lord shall come to pass that every soul who forsaketh his sins and cometh unto me and calleth on my name and obeyeth my voice and keepeth my commandments shall see my face and know that i am that's not quoted very often in church manuals but to me that's kind of what mormonism was all about i just the Lord wasn't this separate part of my world. That was my that was my worldview. So none of that ever seemed strange or questionable to me. And I just assumed that that's the way it was for all Mormons. Uh, and so when I learned doctrines that many people find strange or confusing, like, oh, what about the seer stone? I, I recognize a lot of people, my generation, a lot of millennials, when they first read some of that church history, were like, what the heck is this stuff? Well, I was raised with that from a young age. I remember wondering if I could get a seer stone even when I was a kid. So to me, that never seemed strange. In fact, those are some of the most comforting and approachable parts of Mormonism to me. They don't seem strange at all. And so how did that end up becoming Mormon fundamentalism? Well, I guess the point is, is that from my perspective, I never left the church. The church kind of left me. I would say that's a common phrase too. In early Mormonism, right? Uh, Sidney Rigdon, I believe, to the quote and then um yeah i think right. a lot of fundamentalists believe martin, that martin harris said that as well martin harris that's who it was yeah he was in kirtland yeah it was um, martin harris yeah okay and they were like well why didn't you go with the mormons and he's like well you know they just kind of left me they went to utah i never really left kirtland <laughs> you know so so yeah for me those things were always part of it and i always assumed that anybody who had a problem with any of that they were the ones expressing on, they were the ones who were not orthodox. They were the ones who were fringe. They were the ones who were apostate. I didn't think I was apostate for accepting and believing that polygamy was part of the gospel. I assumed that that was always the case and that anyone who was questioning it was the ones, they were the ones who were questioning Mormonism. Not that I would be in trouble with the church for believing it, but that they would be in trouble with the church for not believing it. Naturally, that naivety wore off as I grew up and the more often uh, what we would call, I suppose, the deep doctrines came up. Uh, the more often that they came up 
Um, and I was like, well, of course, this is the way it is, right? I mean, this is what the prophet said, and this is what Joseph Smith said about it, and this is what John Taylor said about it. Um, and to me, that was just fine. Um, I was kind of, I remember being surprised that more and more I would find my church leaders not only didn't know about those things, but were offended by them and disagreed with me. And I thought, well, don't you follow the prophet? If Lorenzo Snow said XYZ, and you're saying that you don't accept that, doesn't matter that you're my bishop, you're the apostate, right? Well, it didn't take very long for them to exercise their authority to tell me that no, in fact, it doesn't matter if I agree with Lorenzo Snow, they don't, and I better get in line. So how did that lead to Mormon fundamentalism, though? I, I suppose the thing is, is that I, I think I took a little bit different approach. When people think Mormon fundamentalism, they think polygamy, right? That's that's what we just kind of have to get off the table, is that uh, that's that's the synonymous term, and that's what we're known for. And frankly, a lot of Mormon fundamentalist communities, that's really a big focus for them. Um, but really, it wasn't for me. Well, as I mentioned before, I, of course, I... To me, it wasn't a big deal. I did accept that it was part of the gospel. So it's not like it was an obstacle for me. It wasn't offensive to me, but it also wasn't that important to me. Um, you know, for example, oh, let's say the names of one of the enemies of David in some battle in Second Corinthians or something. You know, it's in there. It's in the Bible. I guess that means, and we believe in the Bible and stuff, so I guess that makes it part of Mormonism, but it's not the kind of thing people obsess about, right? It doesn't really matter. That's kind of the way I've always felt about polygamy. Okay, it's a thing. Moving on. Um, but would you say, I mean, I think the the critique with that would be like, well, of course you get to say that you're a man. Sure, sure. And I, I, I totally recognize that, that that does make it a little bit less fair, right? Because then it looks to me like it'd be easier for me to be a polygamist, maybe, than it would be for a woman? Well, I suppose this is skipping ahead in the story quite a bit, but uh, from what I understand, now that I've met a lot more polygamists, I'm not sure it's a lot easier for the men. I mean, one of the things that we hear, and this is just me sort of pontificating now, is when you know we talk about how men just want to do it for the sex. Well, the majority of polygamists, modern polygamists that I know, um, it's really hard, and it's difficult because... You can't share one thing intimately with one person because you need to be fair. So you have to sort of, if you're going to share something special with this person, you need to make sure you're sharing something special with this person. And very few people know how to balance that very right. well. Well, and and not being a polygamist myself, I mean, I can only speculate. But it does sound hard. I think it probably takes a really, really open person who's willing to be just, just heroically vulnerable constantly with everyone and everything and constantly loving. I, I remember one of the things that I read about it was uh, Thomas Chamberlain, who was the bishop of the Orderville United Order for a very long time. He had six wives, I believe, over, um, over his lifetime. And that meant he had a lot of children. And almost all of his children were also polygamous. So he had a lot of grandchildren. And one of the things that struck me about his story was they said some of the neighborhood kids would call him grandpa too, and that he would pick them up and he would play with them and he would talk to them and he would teach them things. And he would say, Hey, let's go fishing and all kinds of stuff like that with every single kid. And even the ones that weren't his and one of his granddaughters who was talking about 
the way he was interacting with her children, so his great-grandchildren, she said, I don't think, I, honestly, I'm not sure that he knows which ones are his and which ones aren't. But I can tell you that every one of his grandchildren, every one of his great-grandchildren think they're his favorite because he has such an overwhelming, overflowing amount of love for every person in every interaction. And I, I just thought, wow, that just blows my mind. But, but really, how else could he compensate? If, 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 if you've got a guy here who essentially has 200, you know, grandchildren and great-grandchildren that he's got to keep track of, no, he's not going to be able to remember all their names and birth dates at the drop of a hat. The yeah. only way he was able to compensate and actually be a decent grandfather and great-grandfather to all those kids was to just kind of have this constantly open, engaged manner. And I thought – Wow, that doesn't sound easy, but and it does sound Christ-like to me, which is one of the reasons why I, I when I see that it, the way it changed him, I think, well, maybe this is a true principle. Okay, so first, let's back up. So you got married in the temple. Yes. Um, okay. So yes, I did all of. I checked all the boxes in the regular Orthodox, um, or I should say, mainstream LDS checklist. I was a good home teacher, hundred um, percent. I went on a mission. Got married in the temple. Um, went to college. When I graduated, we moved to Taiwan, which was a great adventure. Um, and while we were there, I had uh, the interesting opportunity that I got to become a temple worker um, in the Taipei Temple. Because, well, one of the things that is a little bit sad about some of those temples is that the locals don't attend as frequently as they're encouraged to. Uh, so we actually did quite a bit of English language temple work. Um, in the Taipei temple there. Um, it's also compounded by one other factor, which is most temples, uh, when you submit uh, names for their temple work to be done, there's a cap at 500 years old. If somebody was born more than 500 years before, then they aren't eligible. Sorry, you're breaking up on me. Um, what I was saying is is that uh, in, most, in most temples, um, pretty much anywhere in the world, if a if a deceased person's name is more than 500 years old, you have to get special permission before you can submit them to have their ordinances done. Um, because of Taoism and ancestor worship in Chinese speaking countries, uh, which means two temples right now, uh, Taipei and Hong Kong, there is a massive, massive uh, amount of records that go back thousands of years in great detail. Um, much more genealogy rec genealogical records in Chinese than any other language by a huge amount. Um, and so there's no such rule when it comes to Chinese language names. So in the, um, in the Taiwan temple, I, I did temple work for people whose names, uh, people who would have been born or died during the lifetime of Christ, during the lifetimes of the ancient um, Old Testament prophets, even um, as far back as the book of Judges. Uh, people who would have lived and died, you know, in truly ancient times. I mean, how are they getting these names documented? How are they doing keeping those records? Well, um, the primary way actually is pretty cool is a, is an ancestor box. So one of the things that you'll do is you will keep a, um, a usually a beautiful small ornate box, and inside the box are are small pieces of wood. Um, essentially, they're the old pages, uh, thin pieces of wood with the names of ancestors and their relationship to the other ancestors written on each small 
uh, piece of wood that goes inside that box. And some of them get very large once you're going back thousands of years because that's a lot of names. And then you burn incense at your family altar uh, in front of that box as you pray to the ancestors or as you do things for them, such as they'll like burn money. And essentially that means that the money has died and gone on to the spirit world where their ancestors are um, as a way of giving them a gift. Um, and so, so yeah, that's a major part of Taoist culture. And therefore they have, they've, they've been doing these traditions of keeping those names nonstop for almost 4,000 years. Wow. And so, yeah, you'll have, um, and, and there's, there's actually traditions and rules for exactly what to do when a name is getting to be illegible or a piece of wood is rotting away because it's too old and you're, you hand copy down every single one of them and put them in a brand new box and, and get it all. And in order to keep everything fresh. Um, and so, yeah, there are literally billions of names of their ancestors from ancient China. Um, so anyways, there was a lot of temple work to do, I guess is the bottom line. And there were just not as many people doing it. And there's only two temples to get it done in. So, um, there, I think, and, and mostly they were Americans, uh, who came to Taiwan. Uh, for example, our temple president was American. Our mission president was American and that was our English. And we had an English speaking ward there. Um, and so we felt a certain amount of urgency of saying, well, look, you know, we don't do this temple work very fast and there's so much to do. We should, we should do it every week. So, so one of the things we did was we set up a ward temp, a weekly ward temple night. And I was one of the temple workers who got to learn how to do all the ordinances at that time. Now, um, gee, we're going to have to bring this full circle and remind, um, remind the listeners what the question was again, which was what set me down the path that eventually led me to being outside the mainstream church and in uh, Christ church is the name of our church in uh, that's considered Mormon fundamentalist church. Well, it was really the temple and it was really while we were there in Taiwan that really got me started uh, thinking about it. Now it didn't exactly get me out of the church, but it got me thinking because um, when we were in Taiwan, so I'm in my twenties, this is just a little while after I graduated from college. I'm married. Um, I, we had one kid in America on my last semester, right before I graduated, uh, was born here in Utah in Cedar city while I was at SUU. And then our second daughter was born while we were in Taiwan. So I'm just a young guy. And therefore, you know, I think I have an appropriate amount of humility knowing I'm not really in charge here. I'm just doing the best I can. And what a privilege it is to, to even be allowed into these inner circles and talk to these general authorities and because uh, you know we had a seventy in our ward too and things like that because this is the, where the church leadership was in Taiwan, um, and I'm in the elders' corn presidency and that kind of thing. So I'm uh, I'm doing this temple work and they say you know we're gonna we're gonna do something different with the initiatories. There's um, we, there was a a committee formed in Utah to see if more people would participate if we changed the uh, uh, initiatory ordinances. That's the Washington Anointing Ordinances. And the results came back really positively. And it's a really good thing, too, because apparently they first started looking into this because there was a lawsuit um, and people were saying it's indecent the way that we are forced to change our clothes in the temple. And uh, and then, of course, in the initial ordinances, you're washed and anointed, which means you're touched with water and oil. And so they're saying, oh, well, it's lewd. So there's this, you know, and there's some lawsuits um, coming up against the church. So 
they decided we're not going to wash and anoint anymore. We're going to substitute a new ordinance where we place our hands on the person's head only and we pronounce a symbolic blessing upon them. So um, instead, so originally, for example, your eyes and ears and arms and legs are anointed with oil and washed with water um, as blessings are pronounced upon your body. Um, well, then after the change, we'd just they would be fully clothed. Uh, so again, they wouldn't be receiving the temple garments by having them given the temple garments. They'd simply put the temple garments on and come in uh, to do the rooms, and we would uh, place our hands upon their heads and we'd say somewhat similar words. But one of the some of the added terminology was, "You were washed and anointed only symbolically as follows." Um, well, this was really upsetting to me. Not necessarily because I felt that I had any right to have a strong opinion one way or another about um, how it should be done, but that I had already been trained and taught that it is of absolutely vital importance to do the ordinance the way the Lord commanded. So did you yeah. see this as just sort of like a market testing sort of thing and you thought, this is an ordinance. It doesn't matter if it's testing better in certain markets. Exactly. In fact, if, if anything is sacred at all, if anything about Mormonism is real, then taking God seriously and not messing this up is about the only way that we can truly show our willingness to obey his commandments. This is like the worst commandment we could break. It would be to change these ordinances because it's been very clear. We've been taught over and over again that there's a way you do it. You don't just say, oh, well, this will be good enough. We'll do it some other way. The other thing was, is uh, I was pretty fresh off the mission. It had been a few years, obviously, but hadn't I just been teaching people in the third discussion? It was the third discussion at the time because we had these set discussions during those years uh, that there was no authority in the Catholic Church because they'd changed the ordinances. For example, they used to do baptism by immersion, and then they decided to immerse them only symbolically as follows by sprinkling them on their heads. Literally, this seems to me to be exactly the same thing. Well, I'm not talking about an analogy. I'm talking about this is literally exactly the same thing that I've been teaching people is exactly what constitutes apostasy. To take a literal ordinance that the Lord commanded us to perform a certain way and changing the words, changing the administration and making it only symbolic. Okay, so when most people experience something like this, it usually leads to a crisis of faith. They start researching the church. That's what I'm saying. (laughs) <laughs> this was definitely a crisis of faith, um, you know, because I thought, well, who am I to question the leaders? The leaders, um, I've been taught all my life, you have to follow the prophet. They're the ones who know, and yet I can't be comfortable with this. Uh, I, I spoke with the mission president about it. I spoke with our area presidency about it, you know, with other members of the temple presidency about it. And... I found all of the reasons why we would do that to be extremely unsatisfying. And yet at the same time, what could I do? I felt like, well, better to have something than nothing. I mean, again, um, going way back to the concept of what is a Mormon fundamentalist. I remember thinking, well, Mormon fundamentalists are just about polygamy. Most of them don't have temples. Though some, Most of the ones who do don't even do these ordinances anyway. So what other option is there? And I think that's one of the main reasons why the mainstream church is such a powerful, large, wealthy, international institution. 
because there isn't the same sense that there is in, say, Christianity, that if one church is doing something that you don't think is appropriate, you can find another church. There's an idea that if you're a Mormon, there's only one legitimate expression of faith, and that is only in this institution. And you don't have authority to question the leadership. The leadership dictates, and you're expected to obey. So you're in Taiwan at the time, not getting a lot of support. So what do you do? Well, for one, I explore the gospel a little bit more on my own. And that did lead me to uh, some interesting sidetracks. So I, I definitely think it's worth mentioning that when I was in Taiwan, I also at this time, even though I still consider myself 110% inside the mainstream, inside the orthodoxy of the church, I started exploring Buddhism. I was in Taiwan after all. There was a, um, a Nigmapa Tibetan Buddhist master there. Uh, that's the, what's called the Old Translation School of Tibetan Buddhism. There's kind of four main schools. And I so I studied a lot of Buddhism, and I basically converted to B- Buddhism. However, I I saw Buddhism as an extension of my Mormonism, based on that uh, kind of the famous sentiment expressed by some of the early church leaders, where they say all truth is part of Mormonism. I felt like I'm exploring part of all truth, so I basically became a Buddhist. And my only real my cognitive dissonance there was I was exploring and finding a great deal of personal fulfillment in that um, inner search within myself, as I learned these various meditation practices, studied the sutras and so forth, I found peace within myself, but I found that I couldn't explain it in a fully Buddhist or a fully Mormon way. When I tried to explain to other Mormons what I was finding through this, these enlightenment practices, through, this, through these Buddhist practices and, and meditations, they would look at me like I was an alien, like they did not get it at all. And when I tried to tell the other Buddhists about how, oh, this is just like what Joseph Smith said in the King Full of Discourse, and, and this is about like that whole fullness and emptiness and emptiness and fullness thing, and this is very Mormon, and they'd be like, uh, okay, I'll take your word for it, but like, I don't get Mormon stuff. So. And so, so it was a little bit difficult because I, I continued to be a, slightly, a fish slightly out of water in both worlds. Um, and maybe that's one of the reasons why I never um, – became primarily a Buddhist, though there was a while there that I really struggled with the question, is my Mormonism a cultural relic that is really part of my Buddhism? Am I, am I primarily a Buddhist who has some Mormon background, or am I a Mormon who also sees some truths and values in Buddhism? And I wasn't really sure which was the predominant religion of mine for a while there. But I think the thing that it really came down to was I, my whole life, I've had these spiritual experiences. I've had this testimony that is really Mormon in nature. And yet I wanted to find a way to make all these ideas play nice together instead of having this cognitive dissonance. I wanted to feel like the fullness of the gospel, which is one of these promises of Mormonism, I want to realize that where I can feel that I can embrace all truth, like those old quotes say, and truly feel like... I belong with all truth and not one or the other. So I guess I did have this feeling that all was not well in Zion, while at the same time wanting to explore more things. And, so you and didn't really you didn't lose your faith in God or the gospel. You maybe lost your faith in the leadership. Is that fair to say? You know, I'm not sure that I really had yet. The 
I'll only call it this now, but the indoctrination is really strong. I, I, I think the main cognitive dissonance was that I felt that there were definitely things that were wrong, but I'd been trained my entire life to feel that nothing could possibly be wrong with the leadership. So I felt really bad for even questioning the brethren. I felt like they could not be wrong. Unfortunately, that meant there was only one alternative, logically for me, which is maybe there's something wrong with me. And that's a very uncomfortable resignation. But that's kind of where I was for several years there, was thinking, look, I dare not question the brethren. They have to be right. But I never, um, but I know that I don't feel comfortable with certain decisions that are going on. I know I don't feel comfortable with the certain, the way that Mormonism is feeling more and more myopic to me, um, changes to the ordinances. Like I said, I, I know that I'm not comfortable with that. But if, if, if there can't be anything wrong with the brethren, then maybe there's something wrong with me for having a problem with what's going on. And so I kind of resigned myself to a self-deprecating attitude about it that, okay, I, I, I refuse to even question. Therefore, there's definitely something wrong with me and I'll just kind of keep my mouth shut. Yeah, I would say and that's was, pretty common for people going through, you know, some sort of faith transition. Right. And I think that, I think one of the first things that kind of woke me up to the idea that, well, maybe I can question a little bit was, um, I, I was asked a question once. They said, do you expect Jesus Christ to save you or do you expect the church to save you? And to me, those were exactly the same thing. It, it didn't even occur to me that those could be different. Like to say that I believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, or to say I know the church is true because I've been raised LDS. Th those two things didn't have a different functional definition at all. And so to be asked the question, do you expect Jesus Christ to save you or to expect the church to save you? sounded to me like they said the same thing twice. And then I realized that's not the same thing. I have to trust in God. I can't just trust in an institution because even if that institution is 100% in perfect alignment with the perfect will of God, even if there was nothing wrong, it would still be a different thing to put my faith in writing someone else's coattails to heaven or actually believing God, right? And once I realized that, I, I guess that's what gave me permission to start saying, well, okay, it can be different. They can be two different things. The gospel and the church can be two different things. And therefore, if that's true, then it's okay for me to say the gospel is the more important of those two. And I need to be sure that I'm not being astray or leading others astray or being led astray um, by the culture and the church, because the church isn't God. Otherwise, you know, I, I realized I can't, how can I be saved in such a state? How can my faith be real if my faith isn't in God and my faith is instead somehow wrapped up in the institution so much that I don't question enough to actually know God? Even if the, even if the church was true, it would prevent me from knowing God because I wouldn't be trying. Okay, so you obviously know now you're giving yourself permission to question and to doubt but I have to say, um, the group that you've joined, Christchurch, is really sort of obscure. It's not it's not known. Why didn't you join uh, the common one down in Short Creek? That's where everyone goes because that's right. where they know. Or why didn't you join the AUB or something like that? What happened? That is an excellent question. Um, so basically what happened was, yeah, I, I, 
I'd learned a lot. Actually, my senior, uh, my senior thesis project, um, because I was a history major, we had to write some real history um, before we graduated with our history majors, even if the bachelor's degree. Um, I did that on the Orderville United Order. That's one of the reasons why I became familiar with Thomas Chamberlain, the story and all of that. Right. Um, so I knew about some of these groups um, and not even just the Mormon fundamentalist groups. Um, I was familiar with like uh, the Hedrickites and the Rigdonites and some of these other ones because I served my mission in Portland, Ohio. So I, I knew, of course, I knew the community of Christ very well. And they were very accommodating about it, allowing us uh, scheduling time to do our own to give our own tours of the Kirtland Temple, a lot of things like that. So I was familiar with a bunch of these other Mormon groups, but I never felt comfortable joining any of them. And that's because of this idea that I had about the temple. For example, if, if I go back to why was I upset about them taking the Washington ordinances out? Well, because I believed that they were important, really, really important. And yet when I looked at, say, the Community of Christ, for example, they don't perform the Washington and ordinances or an endowment ordinance. Uh, that's just not part of their, of their church. And so to me, that was, well, I guess I wasn't that, that interested in that. The thing that had gotten me questioning in the first place was how important I felt the temple ordinances were, how important I felt they were to come into the presence of God. And of course, once I opened up the can of worms by having one ordinance changed, I started doing a little bit more research and um, finding out even just from my own parents about how dramatically different the temple ordinances were in the seventies uh, when they went. Um, and so I'm finding all these changes and I'm thinking, Oh, that can't be right. I love the temple. I believe the temple's important. So, you know, the, there's the original threefold mission of the church. They talk about, we have to proclaim the gospel, redeem the dead and perfect the saints. And everywhere I looked at these other groups, these other LDS movement churches, they w- seems to have an emphasis on one or the other, but they didn't seem to do all three. So when I looked at Mormon fundamentalists, for example, um, I became familiar with a few independents, um, independent Mormon fundamentalists, um, and I also became familiar with the AUB and um, Centennial Park. And I thought, okay, well, let's see if they have anything to offer, right? I, I'm, I'm going to be open-minded, I decided by that time. I'm going to pray about it. I'm going to ask them. And But my approach was to kind of ask them, well, do you have the fullness of the temple ordinances, which is what I'm looking for? And they'd be like, well, no, but hey, we have polygamy. And hey, we do have a great community. And I'd be like, yeah, but that's not what I'm asking for. That's not even what I'm looking for. Uh, for, Again, polygamy is not my number one. It's not even my number two, I suppose, or three in uh, in level of importance. Uh, What I really want to know is if there's the fullness of the original temple ordinances as God commanded them to be performed. And this, the answer for most Mormon fundamentalists is, well, no, we don't. Um, now, the AUB, they do have um, some temple work. Um, I really respect that they're doing that. But they still failed me on a different one, which was, again, it's the threefold mission. I said, do you have temples? And they said, well, yes. And I said, do you have um, how do you perfect the saints? Well, we have these great communities and we live all the, all these principles, including polygamy. Okay, fine. Uh, as far as I was concerned. And then three, how do you proclaim the gospel? Do you send out missionaries? Can I, how will I do missionary work if I'm part of your church? Because to me, that's what it's all about is this balanced approach. All of the gospel, the fullness of the gospel has to mean all of it. You know, one thing's not important, more important than another. You don't tell me that we have faith, baptism, and the gift of the Holy Ghost, and it's great, and for, leave out the repentance part or any of the others. 
Um, and you and I are so, going to do a, an entire episode on the differences of fundamentalist temples versus the LDS. And oh, the changes yes. And and I'd, love, I'd love to participate in a podcast about that because I've studied that um, quite extensively of all of the different groups as well as, of course, the history of it throughout the mainstream church. Well, I but, mean, um, it sounds like that's the main reason that you feel compelled to join this group. So right. you find this group. So, so, yes. So I find out about the group because, um, because it turns out a brother of mine um, is studying Mormon fundamentalist groups. And he's like all excited about um, Adam God teachings, um, consecration, polygamy. And he's, you know, he, so he's quite excited about it. But then I keep shutting him down by saying, yeah, but do they do the fullness of the temple ordinances? And he'll be like, well, no, but what about this other stuff? And so that's the way I kept shutting down the conversation with him. So he gets back to me one time and he says, guess what, Ben? I found out that there is a Mormon fundamentalist group that has a temple. And it's shaped like a pyramid, and it's in southern Utah, and I think they do all the temple ordinances. And I thought, well, that is odd. That is, sounds definitely sounds uh, interesting, at least, even, even if it's just academic. Um, so I got – so I looked it up, and I found out how to contact um, one of the members of Christ Church, and I called him up, and I just asked him um, all my tough questions, like straight off. Hi, I have questions for you. Do you perform all the temple ordinances? Do you do missionary work? You know, um, all that stuff. And he said, well, yes, we do all of it because you have to live all the gospel. And that's why the conversation didn't end abruptly. I thought, okay, now, now we're going to get more specific because uh, that's definitely more interesting to me. Because again, yeah, what was I looking for? I was looking for the fullness of the temple ordinances. And so the idea that they weren't just about polygamy even if they accepted it or allowed it or something that they actually focused on, we build temples so that we can preserve all of the temple ordinances, including the lesser known ones, like say the Holy salutation, which is performed at the school of the prophets um, or the ordinance of washing of feet, uh, second endowments um, as well as the original version of the um, first endowment and baptisms for the dead and so forth. So, um, yeah, so, that's really what got me interested. Let me ask you a pretty hard question about the temple. Okay. So most fundamentalists, as the story goes, in 1978 started building. They didn't build their own temples before. They had this sort of rote prayer where they would teach their kids to face the temple like Mecca and say, you know, we pray that the that someday the doors will be open to us and the house will be set in order. But in 1978, when the LDS Church lifted the ban on priesthood, and allowed black people into the temple, a lot of fundamentalists start building their temples. And so to many, the the fundamentalist temples can look like, you know, these sort of racist protests, if you will, to the LDS church's stance, because a lot of fundamentalists said, you know, now the temples are truly desecrated. But Christchurch temple is a little bit different. 1978 is an important date for you. But from what I understand, it is not a reaction to the priesthood ban. Is that accurate? That is accurate. It's it's kind of interesting too. Um, it's not as much before as um, as to make it n- not confusing to people. But essentially, 1977 is the is one of the really important dates for us because that's when Rulin Allred is martyred. Um, Rulin Allred, being a Mormon fundamentalist leader that a lot of your listeners will be familiar with is martyred in 1977, and at that point, there's there's actually, well, especially from our perspective, there's a lot more turmoil going on in Mormon fundamentalism than um, before that. And we kind of come out of that crisis. But 
Christ Church was organized again. We apparently we like the date April sixth. So April sixth, nineteen seventy eight. Christ Church is organized. What we believe is is that that is the beginning of the actual setting in order. That we are being set in order by um, reorganizing all of the quorums, all of the functions of the church into one organization again. Um, a lot of Mormon fundamentalists, and such as Real, even during Roland Allred's lifetime, kind of have this balance, like you were talking about with this prayer, where it's like, well, we do certain gospel principles like uh, polygamy and the United Order, and we're keeping some of those principles alive, but the church is still the true church. We're kind of partners in living the fullness of the gospel. They do some stuff like send out missionaries and have more money to print the Book of Mormon. We do other stuff like some of these higher principles. That kind of that really ends for us when Rulon Allred is martyred, and Gerald Peterson Sr. Uh, is his name, who was a friend of Rulon Allred, um, and actually they were both uh, physicians and worked in the same office, and so he actually took took over Rulon Allred's practice, so um, his medical practice. After he was after he was shot, but uh, he has the this, these impressions about putting things into order, essentially new wine, new bottles. So this reorganization, as we see it in April of 1978, was specifically about building a new temple. Did that because, have to do with the race issue? Actually, no. Um, one of the things you might recall is that even Spencer W. Kimball and Bruce R. McConkie and all those guys had not even decided by that time that they were going to do anything about uh, race or changing the policy. It wasn't until June. Uh, so admittedly, it's only a few months before, but it was a few months after that they did that. And now we did take that as confirmation of um, the prophetic power of Gerald Peterson Sr. Because he prophesied that that would happen. He said, why are we reorganizing this? A lot of, I mean, don't forget at this time, lots of Mormon fundamentalists for a long time, for a generation, have had this attitude that the church will someday be set in order, but the time isn't yet. And so what they're doing is right. What we're doing is right. We're kind of partners. He said, no, the Lord is telling me that I should prophesy that the mainstream church is going to go into complete apostasy. They're going to change the ordinance, break the everlasting covenant and lose the priesthood. And that the only way for us to preserve it on the earth and continue this dispensation is for us to live all of the principles of the gospel, do our own missionary work, build a temple, and do everything now before they lose it. That way there's no like new dispensation question. It'll be a continuation. Um, and don't forget, in Christ Church, it's not just me. I, I'd say it's certainly a majority of our membership are former members of the mainstream church, including Gerald Peterson Sr., um, was also in the mainstream church. Um, and so this is what his prophecy is, is that they will go into apostasy, that they'll change things. So a couple months later, they say, we're changing the policy on the priesthood. And yes, these are Mormon fundamentalists. This is the 1970s we're talking about. That was taken as confirmation. It was like, oh, well, look, just, just uh, six months ago and then only two months ago, he's prophesied that this is going to happen, and now it has. So would you? So you're talking about it though, past tense, as if your church has evolved on the issue. Would you say that uh, the? And, and we're going to talk about race in a different podcast too. So I don't want to make sure. it all about that. But sure, but 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 I understand it's it's a very important issue. It really deserves its own podcast um, to talk about the whole race issues. 
I, I know that my thinking is quite different. I was, I've never been comfortable with it. In fact, um, if you want to talk about faith crises, um, probably one of my first big faith crises about whether or not I could accept Mormonism at all was when I found out there was ever a race, a racially based priesthood policy. I, I thought if Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, or any of them ever did that, then I don't know that I can believe Mormonism at all. And, if that was ever part of Mormonism. And because let's not beat around the bush. There are, let's not beat around the bush. There are plenty of fundamentalists that still really um, uphold and believe that the ban is of God, right? Or the ban, we're going to call it that. Right. It's an LDS term. Um, but I should say that Ben is, <laughs> you're kind of one of my favorites because you're very, very politically liberal, socially liberal fundamentalist. And I don't know if you would like uh, saying that because I'm sure it's hard for you in your community sometimes. Oh, well, and of course, that is the thing. It is true. Uh, in Mormon fundamentalist circles, there are people who are just plain racists. It, it's a thing. And there's no point in, in, in denying that. There are people who are just plain racists. Uh, I don't think that um, the gospel is racist. But there are people who do. And I, I get that. Now, I think that our views on race are quite a bit different, um, but it is definitely a fraught topic with us as well because, like I said, um, after we've been organized for just a couple of months, it was like, well, look at that. They're already changing the priesthood. So they're clearly going into apostasy. Now, I would consider uh, some of the other changes that they made around the same time to be far more troubling, uh, such as removing the original garment from the initiatory ordinances. I mean, I was upset when they changed it in, in 2003, um, but it was, um, it was something that they'd already changed in, uh, in 1978 was when they started saying, no, just wear your street garments. See, that was the thing that originally they called the original garment the temple garment, um, and then your, your cut-down versions, your um, two pieces and things like that were called your street garments. Um, and so right, right at that same time, they started saying, well, no, we, we don't put on temple garments anymore. Go ahead and just wear your street garments in the temple. Um, I would consider that a more serious violation than the priesthood policy. But at the same time, we believe essentially that, okay, brought race issues, like I said, aside, that kind of deserves its own um, address. But we would consider basically in 1978, they're making it very clear that the church is now comfortable saying that we're going to make our own policies regardless of what the Lord thinks. Now, what about the idea of continuing revelation or, you know, the current prophet is better than a dead prophet, which is an LDS thing. I mean, they just, the LDS church just, it's 2017 updated the garments where they're almost becoming tank tops for women. You know, actually, yeah, I thought it was interesting. I even read a a blog article a couple of years ago uh, from a woman who was like, why can't I, have a spaghetti strap top with the marks on it. Like how would that really be functionally different than what we're already doing? And I thought, well, I don't know if it would be any different. I mean, <laughs> what they're already doing. Yeah. It's, it's quite a bit of changes. Um, I'm not sure. Well, here's what I would really like to address is the question of, well, what about continuing revelation? Um, I believe in continuing revelation in Christchurch. We definitely believe in continuing revelation. But we don't believe that continuing revelation means that we can 
change course. I, I guess the question is, is that can continuing, can a new revelation contradict a former revelation? Um, I guess this is where we are fundamentalist in the sense that we take certain things as fundamentals, is that I would consider that a violation of the most fundamental concept of what is truth. Truth cannot contradict other truth. You can have paradoxes, sure, where there's two things that are difficult to reconcile. Um, but if you just flat out say, that was truth, but now this is truth. Uh, I'm sorry, that, that, that violates my most fundamental logic about what is the nature of truth. Truth simply doesn't change. You can't have something true one day and not true another. One of the things that uh, is in the lectures on faith um, in the original Doctrine and Covenants that's mentioned quite a few times is if God were a changeable being or if truth was a changeable thing, we wouldn't. it would be impossible for us to exercise faith. Well, why is that? Because we have to have confidence that God doesn't change, that his truths don't change, that his doctrines don't change, that his ordinances don't change in order for us to have any confidence that what we're doing now has any validity. For example, if a living prophet is more true than a dead prophet, if that paradigm were to work, and I, I'm, I'm stating fundamentally, I don't think it works, um, then essentially you'd have to have the prophet having more authority than God because the prophet would be, would be telling God what to do and God would be changing the universe itself to match what the prophet wanted. Um, that's not how it works. The prophet has to humble himself before God to seek revelation and listen to what God has to say. Um, in which case, God's not going to be changing his mind about his truths. Um, otherwise, how could we have faith in God even? Let's say that that is actually how it works. Let's say God could be arbitrary. If God could be arbitrary, and he could say one day that this is sin and that is not, and then he could change his mind and say, actually, that's not sin anymore, and this is, then we could have no confidence in a God like that. Because we would never know if what we were doing was approved of by him or not. Um and that goes even beyond this life. Let's say God says, this is the way you're saved, and he saves us and he brings us into heaven. And then sometime down the eternities, let's say 100 billion years from now, God says, you know what? I changed my mind about the requirements for um, getting into this kingdom because I changed my mind or something. Um, then what do we have to do? Do we have to leave the celestial kingdom now because we no longer meet the requirements because the requirements have changed? Um yeah, I, I guess the point is is that truth cannot function that way. That is how truthiness works. Truthiness is what feels right, what makes sense to you, um, what fits with the times or the, the social expectations. Those things change constantly. They feel true, but they're not consistent. And if they're not consistent, I just – I can't have confidence that they're eternal. They have to be consistent if they're going to be eternal. So, so when we ask, well, what about continuing revelation? I'd say I would take it as a fundamental truth that two true prophets would not contradict each other, at least not in matters of fundamental doctrine. Now, sure, people can express different opinions over time. People can have different worldviews over time. But they're not going to disagree about fundamental things that are of essential importance to salvation or eternal things. Like um, we might have different attitudes about what constitutes looking neat and comely, what, what kind of clothes we're going to wear, what kind of hairstyles are in fashion, whether or not men can have beards. Um, th those things change constantly. Um, but if one person preaches that God is 
not an embodied being. God is a feeling in your heart. He's big enough to the universe, but small enough to fit in your heart, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and a different person preaches, God is not without body parts or passions. God actually liter- literally has a body. In fact, I've seen him like Joseph Smith did. This is why Joseph Smith was such a revolutionary character at the time, right? He, he took God from being this um, unembodied spiritual essence that's outside the universe itself to being an embodied actual person who can show up to you in a grove of trees. You can look him in the face because he has a face and he's a real person. And he's like like a man in all the body, form, and parts and passions as, as a man, uh, which is what Joseph Smith said in the King Folk Discourse. He said, the great mystery is if you could roll back the veil and you could look through the eternities, you could see God as he is, you'd see him as a man. Um, that's, that's so revolutionary. Um, but can they both be right? Can the Protestant view of God and the Mormon view of God be compatible? Can they both be right? It's just different times. So, you know, one day um, the Baptist minister is the God's true prophet, and then God changed his mind about the fundamentals of reality, and now Joseph Smith is? No. I, I think that Mormonism says that so much of our doctrine, so much of our scripture clearly states that cannot be the case. You just can't have your cake and eat it too there. So, so this group becomes more compatible with your worldview and with your spiritual view. And it it makes sense. And actually a lot of people from your group say the same thing, that something was missing and they found it here or your view of the temple is probably the most accurate. Um, We're, we're running out of time. So I want to ask you a question that's a little sensitive, Um, but and I and I'm not going to get into it too much out of respect and privacy for her own story. But you are now in a mixed faith marriage, as you said. You're you're married and um, to one wife. Um, do you want to briefly tell us about that without you know infringing on her privacy? Right. Well, um, so my wife is also a convert. She was raised in an atheist home. Uh, she would say an agnostic home, excuse me, because her parents did not believe in the existence of a god or gods. Um, and actually, sadly, we've had a little bit of an argument about what the difference is between atheist and agnostic. Um, I take what I think is the academic approach. She takes kind of a cultural approach and, and doesn't like the term atheist. Um, so I, I'm going to have to apologize on air on that so that when she hears this, she'll know, yes, sorry, I didn't mean to re- misrepresent um, but so she's raised without a faith. Um, when she is in her early twenties, she, uh, joined the LDS church. Um, and we had a temple marriage and all of that. And here I, I, I was checking off the boxes and I also became a temple worker and I, um, I actually was also a seminary teacher. Forgot to mention that, but I, I did take the CES courses and, and all of that. And I was a seminary teacher for a time. I didn't get lifetime career status, um, but that is actually pretty darn competitive. I thought I was a pretty good seminary teacher. And I taught early morning seminary after that as well. Um, and, and so, you know, here, as far as the checking off the boxes is concerned, she's living the, the Mormon dream, right? She, she got herself returned to missionary. We're, we're very, you know, we're super active um, everything should be, everything should be fine. Um, 
and then I go off and I start having these these other these other issues about logically, um, you know, with consistency of truth, consistency of prophecy, um, and then I become a member of. Christ Church, which of course the mainstream church views as, as an apostate organization, um, I I didn't exactly get excommunicated, but I did resign my membership after receiving a few interesting. Uh, I'll, I'll just call them threats. Now I was I was squeamish to say that at first, but um, uh, for example, my bishop said when he found out that I was associating with uh, these these apostates, he said. Um, we're going to make an example out of you and your family. Um, and some of that did fall. And well, yeah, it did. It fell really hard on, on my wife. Um, she, she had her temple recommend revoked until they could. And they said they did it just as a precaution until they could talk to her and find out how much she agreed with me, what her affiliations and loyalties were. Um, I felt, I felt extremely threatened at that time about that as well, because essentially I've got my wife listening to another man in private who is asking her very searching questions about how loyal she is to me and expecting her to say, Oh no, 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 I am not with him. I don't agree with him. I don't, I don't uh, support him. I don't all these things essentially, uh, which sounds very much to me like they're encouraging her to divorce me, um, and trying to, trying to destroy our family actively. Um, and yet she's still, and yet she's caught in the middle because of course she's, she's not so sure about, uh, and she hasn't ruled out that she may someday be part of Christ church, but she's also not going to be pressured into anything. Um, and so, you know, she has to tell them, well, yes, he's done this, but no, I'm not with him, but, and yes, I still, so I still support the church and they're doing so. They're so they're grilling her with all these tests of loyalty, and and I, of course, I'm I'm feeling at this time like the more they force her to express loyalty to them, the more disloyal that is to me. So yes, definitely a rocky patch in our marriage. And no, I don't think we're completely over it. Uh, she's still in the mainstream church. I'm still a very active part of Christ Church, and yeah, it's hard. I, I, I wish that I knew some silver bullet that would make it easy for say maybe a listener who's questioning or having some kind of um, faith crisis whose spouse is not sharing that with them, that there's some easy answer that will help your spouse to see and understand and sympathize with your point of view. I, I don't know that there is. I do and, think this is a common, common struggle. And mm -hmm. I also, I think it would be interesting for you and I to talk about this policy, this idea, you know, of course we talked about this, that it's, the November 2015 policy that came out that that upset a lot of LDS people where it says that, you know, the LDS church is no longer going to baptize children born to gay parents. And they cited this policy that's been around for a few decades about polygamists. Mormon, not, right. Mormon fundamentalists have already, already had that policy. You've already you've had already. that and you've experienced that firsthand. So that's, I mean, that's an entire subject for another time, but it's definitely affected you. And you guys are in... It, you're in a strange mixed faith marriage, but not mixed faith, right? Because you, because well, you still right. have so because many fundamental Mormon. Fundament Again, yeah, I, I still believe the fundamental truth claims of Mormonism. I still share a faith with her, but we have different loyalties when it comes to 
or, or even the concept of what loyalty means within that Mormon tradition. Um, she still has to affirm if she wants a temple recommend in the mainstream church, she still has to uh, answer at least three questions on the temple recommend uh, that they have in the mainstream church, which are requirements to sustain um, the from the 12 in the first presidency is prophets, seers, and revelators. They have to um, disavow their affiliation or sympathies with anybody who might teach things contrary to the church, which, for example, they would definitely consider my church to be one of those groups. So she's going to, so she has to, anytime she wants to double recommend, she has to go and explain about what I believe and how she's not, you know, exactly completely with me, but she's still married to me and she doesn't want them to tear our family apart. Um, and, but she still wants to recommend and, and all of that. So, so yeah, it's a little bit, it's a little bit tricky, but I, I do have to say that I just appreciate that sometimes if you want a marriage to work, you have to choose love and you have to choose each other. Um, and that has to be more important to you than a lot of other considerations, especially ones that may change over time, like our, our evolving spiritual understandings. And through it all, even through more kids, um, even through moving to a new state and new career, because a lot of this happened while I was in law school, um, and now I'm a lawyer, even through all of that, she is a rock. She stood by me. Uh, she might not have always understood um, the choices I made. She might not have always um, wanted me to make those decisions. But we've chosen to stick it out because – and I, I think for both of us, the, the point is is we still knew what we were getting into when we got into this temple marriage thing and this idea of an eternal marriage. We knew from the outset – I think we had the maturity at the time at least. But we had the maturity to understand that eternal – Eternal means a long time. In fact, it means there's going to be all kinds of craziness in life that is not going to be pretty. It's not always going to be sunshine and roses. There's going to be times when that's really hard and you just have to stick with it because that's what you promised to do. And so, um, you know, there's so many things that I love and respect about my wife. And one of them that I really, really appreciate is that even when she doesn't understand or doesn't even sometimes wants to understand or even hear what I think about something, she is going to stand by me and I'm going to stand by her because we're a couple and through thick or thin, we're family. I think that's beautiful. I think that's a, a good way to end this one. It's always really beautiful when people choose people over principles, I think, and probably not expected to you know from a stereotype of mormon fundamentalists who are seen as rigid and extreme and you certainly break that mold so uh, i'm excited to talk to you again what are we going to talk about in our next episode well um you brought up a couple of tough ones we should probably talk a little bit about what um what i what apostasy uh is from my view maybe um and maybe we can put that into the context of what apostasy has meant through the various branches of Mormon fundamentalism and their relationship to one another, because apostasy, um, apostasy, well, what did I do? Essentially, I found myself outside the church because I had committed apostasy in their view. Um, well, the main reason I found myself outside the church is because they had committed apostasy in my view. Um, that kind of is, has driven, I think, the, the fracturing nature of the LDS movement throughout yeah, its history. Yeah, this is especially... Um, relevant right now with the whole snuffer remnant movement that's happening. We're seeing a lot of a lot of people 
following that. So, yeah. Right. And, and they're being excommunicated in large numbers on charges of apostasy. So, well, what does that mean in the mainstream church? Um, and I think that's what drives a lot of this and the division. That would be a good one. And we're going to talk about the temple. And I, I think um, we're going to do a few episodes on race and, and how it ties in with polygamy. Right. So that, that can be something that we can talk about as well. But Ben, thanks so much for coming on tonight and sharing your story. Yeah, thank you. Is there anything else you want to leave people with? Yeah, yeah, there's one more thing. And I, I, I guess my point would be that um, the one last thing I'd like to say is that we all kind of have our own our own testimony, our own path, I think, that uh, leads us to truth. Sometimes that leads us to becoming ex-Mormons, um, agnostic, atheist, or various different branches of Mormonism. And yet I, I really believe that at its core, that search for truth, that, um, that impulse within us is really one of the most valuable parts of what it means to be LDS, that, that Mormon legacy that we all share, no matter how we've decided to, to resolve that in our own personal lives. And I think that that impulse for truth, um, I, I, it's, my, it's my hope, it's my prayer that that's what will win out in the end. Not necessarily uh, my view versus your view, but let's all recognize that truth is the most important part. Um, and that, that means it's going to get messy as we, you know, let's say we explore these other issues, uh, very fraught, very difficult issues like racism and how that's affected us, uh, not only as LDS people, but as Americans. Um, it's messy. But if we, have the, uh, if we have as our primary value that we search for all truth, I think we'll find that we have more in common than we have to fight about. Well, uh, I look forward to talking with you again. And we'll, um, should we link to your blog? Would that be helpful? Yeah, that'd be fine. Um, I actually did have kind of a long journal entry kind of thing about some of my experience that uh, I suppose I went over quite a few of those same um, events in my life, at least a few of them uh, in that. And so they might find it interesting to check that out in the longer articles. Okay. Great. Well, thanks again, Ben Schaefer, and we will talk to you soon. Okay. Thank you. Good night. Utah women making local music. If you like the music on this podcast, it comes from a band called Lady Murasaki. You can check them out at ladymurasaki.bandcamp.com.